We come this morning to the 10th chapter of Matthew. And, uh, and we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew now. And this is our 85th message in there, I think. And uh, we find ourselves beginning a whole new section in this Gospel. Um, it's a brand new dimension for Christ. It's a brand new dimension for His followers. Um, what we're going to look at this morning is the calling and the commissioning of the Twelve. And we're just going to look at that first verse. <clears throat> and we're going to apply some different things to it. How Christ sent out uh, His disciples. Um, the chapter is marked really by the first verse. We already read it. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him. And then if you look at the second verse, it says, Now the name of the 12 apostles. Interesting how they're no longer called disciples, but they're called apostles in verse 2. And so there's a change in the pattern of the ministry of Christ here. And it's kind of a a critical thing to understand because he begins a whole new uh, phase here in the, the work that Christ is presenting And I think we're going to learn a lot as we go through chapter 10 about discipleship. Uh, We're going to learn a a lot about what the Lord did, how he uh, ministered to these men that he had around him, how he trained them and how he passed the baton on to them when he went up to glory. Um, And I think we're going to be affected by it because it is the word of God. Amen. And so um, remember last time we left off there in chapter 9 and we saw that our Lord saw Israel and basically the whole world as a field that needed to be harvested. And um, that's why in verse 37 there, he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay. And so he looks at this plentiful harvest and he needs everybody to get involved. He could see the multitude coming to him. And as he looked out at the multitude, it stretched across not only the the immediate multitude, but he saw the whole world. And he could see all the men in the field as something that needed to be harvested. And we talked about what that means, um, that the harvest really is the coming judgment. And Jesus saw them in light of that coming judgment. And he saw them in light of that coming doom and eventually on their way to hell. See, because either you're in two categories here. Either you're part of the grain, and you're either going to be burned up, or you're going to be barned. (laughs) You're going to be stored. Okay? You're going to either be gathered in, or you're going to be cast out. There's only two categories. Um, And they had been betrayed, Israel, by their shepherds. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they basically just betrayed him. They were false shepherds. And um, we looked at how the Bible says that they mangled him, they mauled him, they mutilated him, they left him for dead, basically. And you can get those previous messages. But when he saw the people in verse 36, it says that he was moved with compassion. And we talked about how he literally felt their pain. He just didn't look at him and say, oh, it looks like you're having a bad day. No, he really felt it in his gut. And he was hurt deep down inside, and he experienced the agony that these folks were going through. And out of all that, he calls his disciples. And in verse 38, he asked them to pray, 
And he asked them to pray that God would send forth laborers. And we talked about how it's interesting that he doesn't ask them to pray for the lost. That's not something Christ asked them to pray for. He said, send, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth harvesters. That he would send forth laborers. And so in verse 38, uh, or in verse 1 of chapter 10, He calls the very ones that he asked to pray to do the ministry. (laughs) And that's how it works. See, if you're going to pray for your lost neighbor, Lord, please save him, save him, save him. That's one way you can pray that way. But you can also pray, Lord, send somebody to witness to my lost neighbor. How long do you think, if you're any kind of Christian at all, you're going to be able to pray that prayer in good conscience without coming to the conclusion, maybe I should go talk to my lost neighbor. And that's exactly what Christ did. He had them pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Boy, just see the need. It's so great. Send forth people, Lord. Send forth people. And all of a sudden, it began to hit him. Wow, maybe we're the ones that should be going and preaching. And so first it was pray in verse 38. And then in uh, verse 6 of chapter 10, it's go. And then in verse 7, it's preach. And it just kind of builds from there. When they had begun, his disciples began to see the world as Jesus saw it. All of a sudden, they began to have the compassion and the agony the way Jesus did. See, so many times that's our problem. We don't see the world as Jesus sees it. We see those outside the church as the enemy. And I've said this over and over and over again. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Lost people need to hear a message of hope and forgiveness and grace in Christ. And if if they're not going to hear it from us, who are they going to hear it from? And so he said that we need to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers. And then all of a sudden God began to prick their heart and they began to realize that they were the laborers that they were praying for. (laughs) To warn men about the judgment and invite them into the kingdom. See, prayer is never enough. You understand that? You can't be content with yourself if you're just praying. There has to be a willingness to do something. If you don't have the willingness to do something, then don't even pray. I've heard people in the church for years, you know, when a a church is in dire need of help or assistance, you know, well, my spiritual gift is prayer. (laughs) Well, that's great. But if that's all you're going to do, You're not helping us much because, you know what, we need to put some legs to our prayers sometimes, beloved. We have to get out and get dirty. We have to get out and and do what needs to be done. And so that's what Jesus was concluding here is that, hey, we need to pray, but we we don't just pray about it. We have to do something about it. We watched a, a video about Martin Luther a couple weeks ago, and part of the video, it talked about his he had a dear friend who was also a monk. They were both in the Catholic Church at this time. But Luther basically became convinced that justification was not by the flesh, not by the law, but that justification was by faith and faith alone. And he was convinced of that because that's what he discovered the Bible to say. And he set out to reform the Catholic Church. And he was going to go right down into the depths and the heat and the dust of the battle 
And his friend, who was also a monk, said, you know what, I believe in what you're doing, and I want to partner with you. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go up to the monastery, and I'm going to begin to pray for you every day. That as you go down there and you confront the heresies of the Catholic Church face to face, I'm going to be praying for you because I really believe in what you're doing. And Luther would go down, and he would have these confrontations. And his friend would retreat to the monastery and just pray for God to be gracious to him as he underwent his task. Kind of like he's holding up his hands in prayer. The Old Testament picture. And the struggle was so fierce for Martin Luther that he reported back to his friend and his friend became even more intensified in his prayer for Martin Luther. And one day the biographer says that his friend had a dream And he dreamed that he saw the world as a field. And as he looked over the field that stretched over the entire world, he could perceive it in this dream. He saw one solitary man going through the field as big as the globe. And in that dream, it was apparent that such an impossible and heartbreaking task could never be done by one man. And he looked closer in his dream and he saw the face of that one man was Martin Luther. The story goes on. He says that he woke up and immediately he went to find Martin Luther. And here's what he said. I must leave my prayers for God has shown me that praying is not enough. I must give myself to the work. See, that's what we're called to do. We're called to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not good enough just to come to church. It's not good enough just to kind of pray we, we're going to ask God, how have you gifted me? How have, how have you, um, you know, what are my talents? What are my gifts? How do you want me to be used? And I think that's basically where we're at here in Matthew 10. Um, there's one solitary person here, Jesus Christ, and he's moving through this field alone. And he begins to say, hey, wait a minute. This is, this is a big task. I'm going to be out of here. I need to set up a way that this will continue. Through other men. And so he's going to call the 12 others as ministers. He's going to commission them and give his personal kind of, they're going to be his personal ambassadors. And he's going to send them out into a lost and dying world with the message of hope and grace and forgiveness in Christ. Um, Now the major thrust of this passage begins in verse 5. But we want to kind of set a little bit of a foundation for it. Uh, I think that Before we get to verse 5, we have to look at what exactly is is going on here. So I wanted to look basically this morning at at verse 1. And then next week we're going to look at some of these names that appear and look at some of their backgrounds. Um, But I want to mention three features basically of these first four verses. Three elements of the commissioning of the twelve. The first one here is their initiation. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. And then their impact. And we're just going to mention that at the end of the message. But first of all, we want to look at their initiation. Um, And then in a couple weeks or next week, we'll look at their identity. So we see there their initiation in verse 1 of chapter 10. And you see their impact also in verse 1 of chapter 10. And then the identity is in verses 2 through 4. Okay. And so I just want to give you a little bit of a background here of what's going on in their initial stages as Christ begins to hand off to them the baton 
of sharing the gospel and, and preaching the gospel. It's basically, we're going to be talking about discipleship. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, I want you to learn how you should disciple someone else. I want, to, want you to learn how you should be discipled by someone. Uh, that's what God's plan is. And so this is really the Lord's discipling pattern, and this is how he trained his 12 disciples. So we can look at it and we can say, okay, well, if Christ did it, then maybe we should try this. Okay. First of all, let's look at their initiation. Their initiation. Uh, we only have one statement there. And when he had called on to him his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. Or having called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. Uh, how did he initiate this? How did Christ begin this? How did he get them involved? You know, one thing, as you're involved in ministry, you're always trying to get other people involved. That's just one of the goals. Well, how did Christ do it? How did he get to the place where he called them and then he sent them out? Well, if you look at that first phrase there, and when he had called them, it's a very simple word in the, in the Greek. Proskalio. Kalio means to call. Pros means forward. So it's kind of an intensive word that means to call someone forward so you're face to face with them. It has the idea of a face to face calling so that one can receive a commission from the other. It's an official commissioning. He called them before his face and he gave them commands to give them a commission, to send them, to instruct them. It's the same word over in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, when God was calling those leaders who were in the church of Antioch. It's an official, if you were, commissioning of someone. And it's time now for the commissioning of the disciples. Now you notice in verse 2, and I already mentioned this, he says that there are 12, disciples, or 12 apostles but they're only called disciples in verse 1. But all of a sudden, they're apostles in verse 2. See, the difference is they were disciples when they were learning. That's what a disciple means. Mathetas, it means a learner. But then there were apostles when they were to be sent. The apostle means to be sent. And so first they were learners and then they were sent. See, so many times we have to make sure that we have this transition right here. How many of us have come to Christ, can remember when we came to Christ, and we didn't know anything? You know, if you're anything like me, you didn't even know anything about the Bible, whatever. Just, I mean, I was raised up in the Catholic Church. I knew about Catholicism, but that was about it. But I remember when I got saved, man, I was going to tell everybody. And I remember just going out and just, you know, mowing over people, you know, with the gospel. No tact, nothing, just plowing them under. You know, you got to repent. You got to, you know, just going off. I remember offending a lot of my family as a result of it. Because I didn't know what I was talking about. I knew that God had changed my mind, but I hadn't learned anything yet. And so this is a transition here that we're looking at from be, being learners in verse 1 to being sent in verse 2. They've been trained and now they're sent. So our Lord is calling them to work with him. He's calling them to gather some of the lost and mauled and exhausted and all these shepherdless sheep that he talked about at the end of chapter 9 before the reapers, as we find out in Matthew 13, are angels, come and cut them down and throw them into the fire of judgment. 
And so the Lord sees this judgment coming, and he's saying, hey, we've got we to gotta get organized. We've got to get some stuff done here because we got, the time is short. It's time to evangelize. It's time to preach the kingdom of God. It's time, as verse 6 says, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and going to preach and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's this very critical point that we find ourselves here. There's basically four phases, if you want to look at it this way, in Christ's ministry of training the twelve. There's four phases that he went through. Number one was their salvation, was their conversion. In other words, you can't train a disciple if they're not converted. That would be kind of hard. All right? In, in John chapter 1, verse 35 to 51, it, it covers that illustration of their initial calling to faith. He called them to faith. He converted them. Uh, he called many, but there, it pinpoints several of them in John 1 who are so well known to us. And that's the initial calling, one who is called to faith in Christ. And that's something that each person has to grapple with. You know, God wants each of us to come to faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is there. The gospel is out there. If you come to church here, hopefully you hear the gospel of the, of the, the, the loving Christ, loving Jesus every week. In some form or another, I'm, I'm telling you that, you know what? It's not all about who you are. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We all need to repent, stop going our own way, and we need to turn to a loving Savior and ask his forgiveness and he will grant it to us and we'll be saved we hear that all the time well that was the first point they had to go through they had to be converted but then after they were converted if you read through the gospels basically they went back to their jobs they went back to their secular employment they went back to their homes in the second phase of christ training them was basically recorded in Matthew 4, and we looked at that when we went through that section, verses 18 to 22. It says, He saw two brethren, Simon and Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. See, they've already been converted. They've already been saved. And now they were receiving a call from God to serve him right alongside of Christ. They had to leave their nets. They had to leave their secular employment. They had to leave their homes and follow him exclusively, totally. And to some degree, that happens to every believer. The Bible says that we should, what, take up our cross daily. That Christ didn't come to, you know, uh, he, he came to, he brought a sword between the family. Sometimes families are divided over the faith. That's just the way it is. But this was their calling, you might say, into ministry. They've been called to salvation, phase one. Phase two is, hey, I'm going to call you into ministry and I'm going to attach, you're going to attach yourself to me and you're going to follow me around. You're a bunch of fishermen, I know that, but you know what? Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to work with you on this. And this was their schooling. Uh, and and there's, a, there's, a, there's a point in time where we all need to be educated. That's why, hopefully, when we come to church, that we, when we teach the Word of God, you're learning something about God's Word. That's so important. So first, conversion, then to ministry, and then thirdly, the third phase of Jesus dealing with them and training them was really to send them out, kind of in an internship kind of a fashion. 
He didn't just let them go and say, hey, okay, have a good time, see you later. No, he said, you know what? Now that you've been saved, now that you've learned something, now I need you to go test what you learned. Just go out there and and give it a try. And that's what we see basically here in verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 10. And that's basically where we're going to spend a majority of our time today. But there is a fourth phase when Christ finally, after his resurrection and his ascension, he sent them out, remember, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so those are the four phases of Christ's ministry. And we all need to go through that. We all need to be taught. I remember when I got saved, being a Roman Catholic, I thought, well, I'm going to go infiltrate the Catholic Church, become a priest, and expose everything that's wrong. <laughs> and I had a pastor friend that said, that's probably not a wise idea. That, you know, that, that wouldn't be a good idea to do that. You're being deceptive and all this stuff. So he said, you know, if you feel God's calling you into some form of ministry, I think you need to be educated in the Bible. So go to Bible school. So that's where I came out to California. I went to Bible school for three years, got a degree in pastoral ministry, biblical studies. And then I had to make a choice. Do I go right on to graduate school and work on a master's degree or do I go get involved in ministry? And I had a very wise professor who said, Steve, you know what? You're the kind of guy that learns by doing things. You're not the kind of guy that eats it up in the classroom. Just look at your GPA, okay? It was kind of clear, okay, to me that I was not a bookworm or anything like that. Uh, And he said, you know, you've learned so much in the past three years, it would probably be best for you to go get some experience and apply what you've learned because then you'll hold on to it. And that's what I chose to do. And so he's doing the same thing with the, the disciples here. And so we're going to be looking at this training phase, this kind of a uh, internship phase. He chose the 12 men to be the ones who would go throughout the whole world to establish the church and to verify that he was the Messiah and to affirm his resurrection from the dead as well as his atoning death. He taught them, he taught them, he taught them everything he knew, basically. And so in the process of training them, phase two and phase three, Jesus basically overcomes five problems with these guys five problems that we all come across when we're dealing with people in discipleship when you're discipling somebody that's something that's going to crop up these five things are are kind of pretty clear but before we get to that i just want you to understand that how did he pick these guys how did jesus pick these guys um was it You know, they had a board meeting and said, okay, who do you think would be best to be on the 12? I don't think the Bible says they did that. He didn't say, oh, you're not that good a fisherman because you're always mending your nets. You're not catching any fish. So, you know, maybe give your hand at ministry. Some people think ministry is just for those people that can't operate in the secular world. See, Christ picked these guys... And they were a motley crew. They really were. Uh, They weren't the brightest bulbs on the block. Uh, And you stop and you think, why would he pick these guys? Of all people, why would he pick these guys? And how did he do it? Well, first of all, I think it's clear that he chose them sovereignly. It says that when he called... His 12 disciples. In Mark 3.13, it says, He called unto himself whom he would. 
So it was his sovereign will, his sovereign choice, and I don't know where you're at with the sovereignty of God, but the Bible tells me that God is sovereign. So I'm not going to skirt around it here. There was no executive search. There was no, you know, well, you got to, you know, pastoral search, anything like that. He didn't ask him, how many of you guys want to be apostles? Put your hands up. Okay, we'll put you in training. No, it didn't work that way. Christ sovereignly chose them. They were called by the sovereign will of God and the purpose of God. And that's the way God works. Um, He foreordained Abraham. He foreordained Moses. He foreordained Jeremiah. He foreordained Isaiah. John the Baptist. Even the Apostle Paul who's called into ministry. And so when it says in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I have what? Chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit. That's who he's talking about. See, sovereign God chose his apostles. He chose his individuals. And that's always been God's pattern. He chose Israel. He chose the apostles. He chooses the church. He chose those who serve within the church. Now, he not only chose them sovereignly, but he did it after a night of prayer. He chose them prayerfully. In Luke six twelve, it says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus went out into the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. He was consulting his heavenly Father. See, Jesus wasn't just a rogue part of the Trinity down here doing his own thing. He was in submission to the Father's will at all times. He couldn't just go out and do whatever he wanted. He had to check with the Heavenly Father, is this what you want me to do? So he he prayed all night. And then it says after that, and when it was day, what did he do? He called unto his disciples. And of them, it says, out of the whole group, there's more than just the 12 disciples. There's a whole crowd of disciples that followed Christ. It says he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. What a wonderful thing to to see the, the humility of Christ submitting to the Heavenly Father. They were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen after a night of prayer. Even in John seventeen six, it says um, uh, that they were given by the Father to the Son. It says, I have manifested your name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, Christ says, speaking to the Father. They were gifts from God. And then thirdly, And this is where we're going to focus mainly today. They were chosen to be trained. They were chosen to be trained. They were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen through a night of prayer. But they were also chosen to be be trained. That was the essential part and purpose of their choosing. And for them, the training was three years. Can you imagine spending three years walking with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings here on this earth? That's why they left their nets, they left their families, they left everything, their crops, their tax booths, all of that. They followed everything just because they wanted to wander around behind Christ as he was doing his ministry for three years. I mean, you stop and think, they didn't do a whole lot. They just followed Jesus. And some people were actually critical of them. Some people say, well, they didn't do anything. They just followed him. They left everything. But that's how he trained them. Twelve grown men just wandering around behind Jesus like a bunch of freeloaders, someone said. You can look at that, but on the other hand, there has to be training. 
I've seen a lot of men in ministry who get all of their education up front, right up to their doctorate degree. Never even been in a church as far as pastoral ministry. But they got their doctorate degree and then they go out and they market themselves to churches and churches hire them on. And usually they'll ruin two or three, four churches before they realize, wow, seminary didn't teach me a whole lot. (laughs) See, education is important. But so is hands-on training, and that's what Jesus was giving to them here. He wanted them to understand. He wanted them to be taught. He wanted them to become disciples, learners, before they could be sent out. See, and that's where we all need to go in our Christian walk. We need to be learners of Christ. We need to know His Word. We need to commit it to our hearts and, and, and seek to live by it. Stop and think. Moses spent 40 years to be trained. Paul spent... Well, he spent only three years, and the disciples here had spent three years. I don't know what was wrong with Moses, but 40 years, that's a long time. <laughs> he must have had some issues or something. But there has to be training before you can be sent. So many times, you know, a Christian gets saved, and they don't know anything. They just want to run off and save the world. And, and sometimes it's good to pause and say, hey, wait a minute, let's... let's Submit this to God and, and make sure that God is leading in this way. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, You know what? I'm going to tell you. Here's what your, your role is. Learn of me. I want you as disciples to learn of me. And learning doesn't necessarily happen in a classroom when you hear a lecture. Learning happens when you're out there in the midst of ministry following someone who is doing ministry in a biblical way. Then you learn. You see how they deal with people. You see how they interact with people. You see how they are in, 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 in uh, bad situations and good situations. You see the whole gamut. And it wasn't an easy bunch to train if you stop and think about it. I mean, Peter, who was their leader, he still didn't have a clue what was going on even after the resurrection. We're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. But there's five... Things here, basically, they were, they were chosen sovereignly, chosen by prayer. They were also chosen to be trained. But there's five things here that I want you to see that they lacked. There were some things that they lacked under as they were being trained. First of all, they lacked spiritual understanding. They lacked spiritual understanding. Can you imagine getting a group of 12 guys together saying, hey, you're the guys that are going to Start to, you're going to do all this stuff for the church and everything, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be around. I mean, one of the first things you think they would have is spiritual understanding. Well, they didn't. They didn't. They were always questioning, what, what's this parable about Jesus? I don't understand. And then, you know, when he would say, do you understand this? They would say, yeah, we understand. But they didn't understand. It was kind of a ridiculous routine that they went through. Yes, Lord, we understand. Did they understand what the Lord was doing? No, they didn't have a clue. They were so dull that they did not know that they did not understand. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? I've met people like that. Trying to share with them how to do something. They keep on nodding their head, yes. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, then go ahead and do it. Why am I here? 
oh, oh, you know, then they kind of pause and they reflect, oh, well, wait a minute. I, see, I mean, that's, that's, it's so important to have some understanding of what you're doing. Here, they lack spiritual understanding. They didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand the precepts that Christ taught. They had a hard time getting over their, their, all their prejudices and their religious upbringing. In 1515, Matthew, Peter says, explain to us this parable. And Jesus said, are you also yet still without understanding? He was frustrated with them. They couldn't get it. In Luke 18, verse 31, it says, he took them aside and he said, behold, we're going to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Now, they should have understood the Old Testament. They should have understood the prophets. They should have understood what was concerning the Son of Man. But they didn't. They didn't have a clue that he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, spitefully treated, scourged, put to death, and the third day he'll rise again. All that stuff had been presented in the Old Testament. They didn't have a clue. Verse 34, it says... And they understood none of these things. None of them. The Lord had a hard task here. Especially because they, all along they were saying they understand. See, sometimes we're fooled by people who say they, are, they understand. Yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. But they really don't because they're fooled. They think they understand, but they don't. And so it's important for us to remember, I mean, even remember when Jesus in John 13, he washed their feet. And Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, you don't understand what I'm doing here, Peter. And in Matthew 16, Peter says, you know what? You're not going to the cross. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And Jesus has to turn to Peter, the leader of these guys, and say, get behind me, Satan. What a rebuke. They didn't get it. And you think after the resurrection, after Peter saw the risen Christ, you think that they would get it. Well, they didn't. What they do? They went back to fishing. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. You raised, you're, you're risen from the dead. Okay, see you, see you later. We're going to go back and fish. Crazy. And the Lord comes up and finds them there on the sea. And the Lord sovereignly rerouted all the fish away from their boats so they wouldn't catch anything. And he got them on the shore. He said, what are you guys doing? Remember? And he asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? Oh, yeah, 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 I love you. What did he say? Feed my sheep. Do what I called you to do. And even in John 21, he still didn't understand his role. He didn't understand the purpose of Christ's sufferings. They didn't understand the principles. They didn't understand the parables. They had a lack of spiritual understanding. See, that's part of the discipleship process. And we have to overcome that. How did Jesus deal with that? He just taught them. He just taught them, continually teaching them. In fact, when he came back after the resurrection for 40 days in Acts 1, it says that he taught them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, don't ever get to the point, beloved, in your Christian walk where you think you don't need to be taught. We all need to be taught. When you arrive at that point, 
where you say, well, you know, been there, done that. I've already gone through that Bible study. I've already done this. Why would I go to this again? Why? You're real close to beyond help. <laughs> it's almost like there's a spiritual pride there. You don't even realize you have a lack of spiritual understanding. And we need to all be under the teaching of the Word of God continually. The second problem they had was a lack of humility. Not only a lack of spiritual understanding, they had a lack of humility. They were proud, they were jealous, they were an envious bunch. Um, I mean, can't you imagine Jesus walking down the dusty roads there in Galilee and these 12 guys following him and just elbow, like little kids, you know. I want to be first, just stop, you know, just arguing back and forth. That's all they did, it seems. And you say, well, they were apostles, you know. That's how the Lord talked about them. In Mark 9, verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them this, What was it that you were arguing among yourselves about along the way? In other words, what were you guys fighting about behind me? See, he's out there in front doing ministry or whatever, and they're back there fighting like a bunch of little kids. And it says they held their peace. <laughs> I got kind of embarrassed. They clammed right up. Why? Because they've been arguing among themselves. What? Who was the greatest? Can you imagine that? No, it's me. It's me. No, I want to be number one. Real selfish people these guys were. Basically, he sat him down and he brought a little child and he gave him a lesson on humility. What a rebuke that was. In Matthew 20, they got in a real argument about who would be the greatest. And James and John got so upset, they called their mommy and they didn't want to go to Jesus themselves. So they called their mommy over and said, Mommy, you go ask him. <laughs> she came and he said, What do you want? And she said, Well, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. <laughs> Talk about in your face. Man. A little bit of pride there, I think. They didn't even have the courage to go to Jesus themselves. They sent their mommy up. Hey, go see if we can sit on his right and left hand in the kingdom, Mom. And Jesus answered them and he said, You know what? You don't even know what you're asking. You have so less spiritual understanding and so you're so filled with pride, you don't even know what you're asking. And he says, Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And guess what they said? Sure, we're able. No problem. Bring it on. Talk about pride. We can handle anything. And here's what he said to them. All right, then. You'll drink from the cup that I'll drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But then he said this, but you'll never sit on my right hand or on my left. See, what he's talking about is their martyrdom. In the case of James, martyrdom. In the case of John, persecution and exile. You're going to go through pain and suffering, guys, that you've never felt before. But you're not going to get the right and left seats because, you know what, they're not mine to give. That's up to the Father. Verse 24 of that same text says, that When the other ten heard about it, they were furious. See, and we think sometimes, well, they were furious because, you know, look at them, those two, those pride-filled. No, they were mad because it wasn't them up there asking. That's what they were upset about. They were filled with pride too. 
They needed to be humbled. They had a third problem. If you can believe this, they had a lack of faith. Everywhere you read about the disciples and Jesus dealing with these guys, he's always saying, oh, you have little faith. Over and over and over and over again. And you think that if they saw all these things that Christ had performed, all these miracles, he did so many things, and they still didn't get it. In in Mark 4.40, Jesus says, How is it that you have no faith? (laughs) How can it be after this you still don't believe? At the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, verse 14, says he rebuked them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not those who had seen him after he had risen. They didn't even believe the reports of the resurrection. Now, what a, a bunch of guys to work with. What a, how do you transform them into these guys that are going to change the world? How did he deal with their unbelief? He dealt with it by miracles. He did mighty deeds. He showed them over and over and over again his power. In fact, a lot of commentators believe that the reason Jesus did miracles was not for the crowds that were gathered there, but were for his own disciples (laughs) to confirm to them that he was who he said he was. Even in Acts 1, he said, it says that he showed himself by many infallible proofs. The disciples needed to be sure. They needed to know for sure, believe in their own heart, and have absolute confidence that he was who he said he was. He appeared to them again and again, even after his resurrection. So he overcame their lack of understanding with teaching. He overcame their lack of humility by laying down an example. He washed their own feet. He overcame their lack of faith by doing miracles and mighty deeds. That's all part of the teaching process. That's all part of the discipleship process. He's bringing them along. Well, they had a fourth problem. The fourth problem was this, their lack of commitment. Their lack of commitment. You say, well, I thought they were committed to this. No, they weren't committed to it. I mean, they would say, their mouths would utter the words, we will never forsake you, Lord. Everyone may forsake you, said Peter, but I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. I'm committed. I mean, they really talked up a good game. But when it came down to that terrible hour, crisis time, they just disappeared. (laughs) They disappeared. They were gone. Peter was denying and Judas was betraying. The other ten, they just took off. They couldn't handle it. They were gone. It's interesting. You look over at Luke chapter 5, verse 11. It says, when he called his disciples, here's what it says about them. They forsook all. That's what it says about them. They forsook everything to follow Christ. Too bad it just didn't end there. (laughs) Because in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, or 1450, Mark 1450 says just the opposite. They all forsook. (laughs) They all took off. 
one point they're forsaking everything to follow Christ. The other point, boy, they're just, they're just, they couldn't get out of there fast enough. They deserted Christ when they saw the swords and they saw the Roman soldiers. When they started to get the smell of death, they got out of there. How did Jesus deal with that? In Luke 22, verse 31, Peter, we're talking about Peter here in his denial. Luke twenty two thirty one. The Lord says to him, Simon, Simon. You notice he calls him by his old name. <laughs> he didn't call him Peter. He called him Simon. Why? Because he's acting like his old self. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. What he's saying is he wants to test you, Peter. And you're going to flee and you're going to deny me. But here's the remedy. Ready? Here's what he says. I prayed for you. That your faith fail not. How did Jesus deal with their lack of commitment? He dealt with it through prayer. He dealt with it through prayer. Sometimes it can be frustrating in ministry when you're trying to get things going, you know, just kind of just moving along. And all you see is a lack of commitment. It's all you see. And you're thinking, okay, how do you... You know, do you make them feel guilty? What do you do? I mean, do you preach another sermon on serving? I mean, what do you do to that? I'm beginning to learn the only thing you really can do is pray. You pray for their lack of commitment. That's what Jesus did. He dealt with it through prayer. Men with a lack of understanding, they tried to work and he, he taught them. When they had a lack of commitment, he dealt with it through prayer. The fifth problem they had was their lack of power. They had a lack of power. They were basically impotent. They had no power. They were weak. They were helpless. Look over at Matthew 17, verses 14 to 16. When the multitude came, there came to him a certain man kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's epileptic and greatly vexed. And he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. And guess what? They couldn't do squat for him. Says they could not cure him. So here they are. They're out there on their internship and they're trying. You know, Jesus did this. Okay, well, let's do this, you know. We'll just cast this demon right out. No problem. They were doing all the motions, but nothing was happening, beloved. Sometimes that's a picture of our own Christian walk. We go through all the motions, but nothing's happening. Sometimes we need to stop. We need to say, okay, let's get refocused here. Let's get back to the basics. Jesus said there, O faithless and perverse generation, how long have I been with you? How long shall I bear with you? Some people say, well, who is he talking to there? Well, he must have been talking about somebody else. Maybe he's talking about the whole crowd or whatever. He was probably talking to the 12 disciples. (laughs) How long do I have to put up with you guys? And he goes on there in Matthew 17. He says, bring him here. And Jesus rebuked the demon. He departed out of him. And the child was cured that very hour. And then came Jesus to, or then the disciples came to Jesus privately. They didn't want to do it openly because they were probably embarrassed over the whole scene. And they asked him, why couldn't we do that? 
what you just did? Why, why didn't we have that kind of power? And Jesus said, because of your what? Unbelief. Because of your unbelief. And he says, if you had faith of a mustard seed, you could have move a mountain into the sea. You ought to know that these things like this only happen through prayer and fasting. Great faith, great prayer. But they were impotent. They didn't have the power. How did he deal with that? I think he dealt with it in in an incredible way. In John 20, says he says, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8 it says, and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall receive power. See, it's it's really kind of simple. The disciples were sovereignly chosen by God to be associates of Christ, to found the church. They were chosen through prayer. Okay, they were chosen to be trained. And in their training, they had to overcome their lack of spiritual understanding. They had to overcome their lack of humility by example. They had to overcome their lack of faith through these miracles that Christ did. And they had to overcome their, their lack of commitment through prayer and their lack of power through the agency of the Holy Spirit. See, and that's the same. It's the same lesson that applies to us. When we disciple somebody or we're being discipled by somebody, we're going to have these same problems and they're the same remedies. I mean, I don't know about you, but I identify with these guys. I identify with their problems. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, you know what? If God could use them, maybe he could use me. You know what? In the end, they accomplished their task. They really did because he transformed them. He made them into something that they weren't. And you know, when you looked at them in Acts 4.13, all the hot shots in Jerusalem looked at them and they were blown away and they said, these are ignorant and unlearned men. How is it they have accomplished this? How does this work? See, the Bible says that God chooses the foolish. The Bible, he chooses the base things of of this earth to confound the wise. They literally filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. That's how powerful they were. And the thing they noticed most, it says, they took note of them, it says this, that they had been with who? With Jesus. See, that's the bottom line. When people look at your life, who do they say you've been with? <laughs> you know, I, I wish that were true of me all the time. Boy, that's Steve. Boy, he's just been with Jesus. It's not. <laughs> okay. I, I wish it was all the time. Ask my wife. Okay. Uh, it's not like that. And it's probably not like that for a lot of us. But you know what? We want to become more like Christ each and every day. See, and that's what finally they wound up calling them Christians, which means what? Little Christ. Wow, these guys remind me of Christ. In Luke 6, 40, it says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like what? His teacher. We're trained to be like Christ. Jesus trained them for three years. And when they went out, they were like their teacher. They had graduated. Okay? I mean, graduation day was... John 14, when he says, you know what? I no longer call you servants, but now I call you what? Friends. Graduation day. 
I mean, can you imagine walking with Jesus every day, following him, seeing the incredible things that he did? They were chosen sovereignly, chosen by night of prayer. They were chosen to be trained. And lastly, they were chosen to be sent. And that's what he does in verse 2. He trains them in verse 1 and says, okay, now you're going to be sent. You're going to be sent out as apostles. Sent ones means to dispatch, to go. It's usually used almost entirely of a naval expedition, expedition sent to a foreign city or to a foreign country. Sending someone into foreign service. My nephew Luke is, is just doing a, another tour. He leaves in a matter of days and he's going back to Afghanistan. And by the way, he told me he'd appreciate your prayers again because we prayed for him before when he was in harm's way. But he's going to be sent out there in military service. Well, just as the military sent out, so are we sent out into a lost and dying world. See, discipleship and apostleship go together. I mean, we don't have official apostles today, but we do have disciples. We do have sent ones, and we're all called to be sent out to a lost and dying world. And you see there that it says that in verse 1, they had authority to have power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. That was the impact that they left. Amazing what these guys did. And, you know, we're, we're to follow that example in our lives as we disciple others, as others are discipling us. That's what God wants us to do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you showed us how Jesus discipled men, how he was able to overcome their weaknesses with his power. Lord, I pray that he would overcome our weaknesses with his power in our own lives. And Lord, that we would be disciples. We would be learners of Christ. And also that we would become those who are sent to a lost and dying world with the gospel message of love and hope and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is yet to come to faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth. Lord, that you would show them their own sinfulness, that you would show them their own inadequacy to save themselves. Lord, that you would humble their hearts. Lord, that you would break their hearts, that you would draw them to you. And Lord, that they would respond with the prayer of faith. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would forgive my sins. Help me to turn away from what is wrong and do what is right. Help me to desire godly things, righteous things, and forsake the unrighteous things in my life. That's a prayer God will answer. He'll save you this morning, even as you cry out to him. And for Christians here, I just pray that we would be reminded that we are called to minister the gospel truth, the message of Christ to a lost and dying world with the hope of seeing many come to him in faith. Lord, help us not to water down the gospel, but help us to preach it as we're taught to preach it in your word and let the results to you. We thank you for your, your love for us and the forgiveness we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.